I'm Matthew Woods, host of Leading Out of the Woods, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned, and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, leader of learning, when it comes to professional development, wouldn't you want to save money and choose PD that meets your needs? Midwest Teachers Institute offers the most affordable state-accredited graduate courses on the market for salary enhancement, state certification, and continued education with no hidden fees. With classes designed by professionals active in their field, you get practical tips to help you improve what you do best. Sign up for a class and see why they truly are teachers helping teachers. Visit MidwestTeachersInstitute.org and enter the coupon code LEARNING at checkout to save $30 off your first course. That's MidwestTeachersInstitute.org and coupon code LEARNING. And I always ask the question of why, what's the purpose? What's this going to help me do differently or better? What opportunities is it going to create for my students? Welcome to Devil's Advocate, a Leader of Learning podcast series. Join co-hosts Rochelle Denae-Poth and me, Dan Krinas, as we tackle trending topics in education from all angles, backed by sound research, where no topic is too big or too small and where you can be part of the action. Let's dive right in. Welcome once again to this September edition of the Devil's Advocate series. Welcome, Rochelle. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. Good to be here. It is good to be here. School has started, uh, whatever that looks like for you. For me, it's a hybrid model, and we have about one-third of our students uh, who are coming in in person two days at a time, uh, and then about two-thirds of our students who are remotely learning from home. And uh, it's been a little messy, but we're, we're making it through. And, and um, you know, my work as a coach is is definitely focused on helping teachers, working with teachers on really how to manage those three groups of students, the two uh, hybrid groups who are coming in in person, and then of course, the at-home learners. And uh, it's been it's been a challenge to say the least. And, and you know, what we wanna talk about today, I think has a lot to do with that work, which is educational technology. And, and I, I understand that you are still doing distance learning with students. And um, so you are working remotely. Now you yeah. have, I think, the fortunate position of being at home to do it. I know some teachers have gone back to school and they're teaching remotely from their classrooms. But mm -hmm. how has the how have the first couple of weeks been for you? Uh, I try to avoid saying this word anymore because I find that over the last six months, there are certain words that I've been using a lot. Like it's overwhelming, which we, we've, I mean, everybody in education is saying it's overwhelming. I keep saying it's interesting. And I had a conversation yesterday with uh, Andrew Easton and he was saying interesting. I said, you know, that's a word that I've been using a lot lately because I feel like there's no other way to describe it because it is so different. And being from like in my school, you know, some are teaching from the classroom, I will go in and teach from the classroom at some point. But for now, it's just balancing the different devices. And we are four day synchronous Wednesday is asynchronous. And so trying to help students figure out how to use Microsoft Teams, where to find assignments, do they need to log in and, and all of that. Uh, it's, it's exhausting. And I know the first week this was, yeah, the first week of school, I was absolutely exhausted. I mean, each day felt like a week in itself. And that's something common that I heard other people saying too. Now, 
once I kind of got into like a work habit workflow with it a little bit, the second week is a lot better. You just have to figure out how to kind of balance it, especially when it's coming to the technology, right? Because it's where we have to be on, but finding ways to give students time to be away from that too, as well as um, ourselves to be away from it. So it's it's been uh, different. I'll go with different this time. Different and interesting is what I'm hearing you say. And also what I just heard you say, which I think is a great sort of launching point into this episode on educational technology, is that there needs to be a balance. And so, you know, as we were speaking and and preparing for this conversation, that that is kind of what we spoke about, right? Let's let like let's tackle the the topic of educational technology and and basically uh, figure out and and you know, put our own spin on and figure out uh, why and what research says about how much is is a good amount, um, whether it, it has positive effects on learning or negative and, and just, you know, play devil's advocate here yeah. and see what, what the different sides of the argument say. Uh, it sounds like your argument, at least right now in your situation, and I would agree, is is striking a good balance between mm-hmm. synchronous and asynchronous time on devices and time off of devices. Uh, I guess I'll use the term moving forward in this conversation of screen time. Yeah. Is that is that kind of what you're getting at? <laughs> definitely. Yeah. So um, I definitely did find some research on, on all sides from all angles on this topic. And actually, the first thing I did is because I, a lot of educators, I feel like are pretty, I don't want to I don't want to generalize this too much because there might be people out there who haven't heard of it. But I know that a lot of people are familiar with John Hattie's research. And I I actually heard John Hattie on a a podcast recently talking about some of this stuff. So I went to Hattie's research, actually, and I looked up out of his list of, God, like 200 items, I think, at this point on his um, effect sizes and his uh, Visible, visual, visual, visual learning, visible learning yeah. research, and and I tried my best to see how many of those related to technology, and I, and I felt like as we kind of talked about things now, uh, I, I would see which ones of those uh, he found, and and in his research were found to have more positive effects than others, mm-hmm. and I'll throw a couple out here. So, for example, uh, some visible learning strategies, if you will, that relate to technology that have higher effect sizes are things like technology with learning needs students, which I thought was was pretty telling in terms of uh, supporting students. I know some of his research also talks about um, response to intervention, having a, a really big effect size and, you know, really using tools including technology to support students when they're struggling, right? When they have right. uh, challenging learning needs or when they have um, deficiencies that that technology can help really like boost them up. Mm-hmm. Uh, other things were, now th- this is interesting, technology in other subjects. And at first I was like, what does other subjects mean? But there were also specific um research done on technology in writing, technology in reading and literacy, and technology in math. So technology in other subjects actually had a pretty high effect size of 0.55, which I guess in in Hattie's research, right, 0.4 is basically what you're looking for. And interestingly, on the flip side is technology in mathematics was only 0.33. So meaning it didn't have a tremendous effect or, or, maybe a a lower effect than really what you're looking for. 
and technology and reading and literacy was even a little bit lower at 0.29. So that's interesting to me because math and reading and literacy have definitely become the most uh, prominent educational, you know, school subjects out there, the most tested and everything. But yet they're the ones that when it comes to technology, there's a lower effect size. I found that pretty interesting. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm, I'm glad that you, you mentioned John Hattie because I had just, I had read, uh, I'd seen that same list not that long ago. And then I had finished reading the distance learning playbook, I actually read it. I had it on my Kindle cause I, I, I think the wait time for getting the actual physical book was a little bit. And so then now I got the book, but reading in that some of the, the same, I mean, similar things that you found, but then also looking at, uh, like direct instruction, I think had a 0.59. But then looking at some of the technology, I mean, I use some tools like you use, like Nearpod and some of those interactive lessons. And that one, I think, was at like a 0.54 for um, effect size. And then something else that caught my interest because of artificial intelligence, it was intelligent tutoring systems. That was, I think, around like a 0.51. And it was interesting to me to see what those categories were, which ones had that higher effect size. Um, and I think the average, like you said, is like a 0.4 for all things considered. So really yeah, interesting to look at those. When I first started hearing about Hattie's research a, a few years ago, 0.4, it was explained to me that 0.4 basically means that students are growing at an appropriate rate. Like they're making, let's say, one year's worth of progress in one year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm also glad, you know, I, I left out the direct instruction piece because I figured we'd come back around to it and we did. So that's awesome. Um, and, and, it's, and so here's the thing, you know, if you're looking at Hattie's research, you're looking at things like technology that's being used in reading and, and writing or, or reading and literacy, and then technology used in math at lower than the 0.4 effect size. So essentially less than ideal effect on students, but yet direct instruction and explicit teaching strategies are at a 0.6 and 0.57 respectively. So, you know, I guess what I'm wondering, and and you mentioned Nearpod, and I I also wanted to throw out here that when we talk about educational technology, uh, that's that's one that I think of not even because uh, it's it's one that I use a lot, but I know it's one that you use a lot. And I think that's how we met in in person, at least for the first time at a Nearpod uh, Pioneer Summit. So we love our technology, right? And and it's you're an ambassador for several products. I am. We we present on educational technology a lot. Uh, you you're doing your thing with ISTE. We're all about our technology, but I, I think to boil it down in a nutshell, what I what I glean from Hattie's research anyway is like, yeah, okay, you can use technology, but if you're relying on it too much it's probably not going to be as effective as you want. And as long as you're really mixing in that solid direct instruction with those explicit teaching strategies, that's really the way to go with it. Yeah, I totally agree. And uh, since you mentioned ISTE, I had just become, I went through starting last November, the certification process to become an ISTE certified educator. And I mean, I've been using technology for I mean, a long time, but in my classroom more so over probably the past 10 years. And when I started, it was just kind of trying to give students extra opportunities and finding games. I mean, teaching a teaching Spanish, I wanted them to 
kind of self-direct and choose some activities, but I didn't really look in great detail at what each tech tool was doing. I was just kind of grabbing a lot of different ideas and letting the students interact with them and see what happened. But now when I was going through that process, actually over the last couple of years with the work with ISTE, looking at the different frameworks that are out there for bringing technology into the classroom, but putting together my portfolio over the past couple of months leading up to the beginning of August, it was really uh, it was time consuming to go back, which I really enjoyed it to see the different ways that I've used it over the last couple of years and think through like, why was I using this specific tool? Or is there something that I could have done that was totally not technology that would have led to a greater impact for students and to really think through the process? Like it's great. The technology is great, but you know, learning first, technology second, pedagogy first, technology second. So to give myself that chance to think through, especially now moving forward, uh, you know, what is the true purpose? And there are so many tools that are out there and it, we can't necessarily be focused on this one tool because as we well know, they don't stay around forever. I mean, some of them we, we hope that they do, but it has to be focused on like, what are we trying to accomplish with that and focus on the actual teaching, the instruction first, but supplement it with some tool that opens up a lot of other opportunities for our students. At least that's how I've been trying to kind of look at it in my work. Yeah, I think that's a great way to look at it. I would love for more educators to look yeah. at it that way. And um, when, as you're speaking about that stuff, I, I think of two things and two people. I think first of Simon Sinek with the golden circle, start with why. Um, it's I'm gonna I'm just gonna throw it out there. This is my opinion, uh, and I'm sticking to it. I, I feel like it is irresponsible for teachers to just use technology tools without thinking about the purpose behind it, which I, th I think is what you just said. I might have just said it a little more strongly. Um, I I'll get back. You know, I'm gonna get back to that in a second because okay. I have some thoughts about that. I also think about uh, someone like a Dr. Monica Burns who talks about tasks before apps, and mm -hmm. what you just said makes a lot of sense. It's like let's think about what we want our students to do before we just dive right in and throw technology and, and different programs at them. And, you know, that that's uh, a, a part of UDL, right? Universal mm -hmm. Design for Learning and, and backwards, design, backwards planning. Um, so I, I think that's really sound practice as well. What I wanted to say also about the, the piece that we were just talking about in terms of uh, being irresponsible, let's say, about just jumping right in with the technology... I feel like right now at the beginning of the 2020-21 school year, um, it's almost what we have to do. So I just said we, we're irresponsible if we do it, but I'm also saying we kind of have to do it right now. And here's why. Here's why I say that. In my experience at my school, um, I still feel like there are plenty of teachers out there who aren't comfortable yet with the kinds of technology they need, especially in the hybrid model. Right. If you're expected to be connecting with students both in person and at home, you need a good device and you need a good program that'll allow you to do that. And I'm going to I'm just going to say in my school, um, we don't have those devices. So a lot of teachers have computers that don't have cameras and don't have microphones. So literally they can't. Right. So I think right now there are good reasons for why teachers may want to jump right in with the technology first and explore it and learn it and play with it and get their students to use it without really having a, a super clear picture of where they want to go with it. And I am like, I, I hate saying that, but I think it's true right now. Moving forward a couple months from now, I don't think that's going to be the case. But I do think right now a lot of teachers have to kind of dip their toes in the water and, and get used to using some of these tools. Yeah. And uh, 
and I agree, like it's, especially even when the schools were closed in the spring, I mean, you kind of had to do the same thing, right? You, in, in most cases, thought you're going to be out of school for two weeks and then weren't really sure. I know in Pennsylvania, it was kind of like, okay, is it two weeks? All right, it's another two weeks or it's one week. And then are we going to have this decision? So it's the rest of the year. And I think in that case, a lot of teachers, including myself, even though I know a lot of different tools that are out there, trying to figure out what what is the best way that I can continue teaching Spanish and STEAM and do all of the things that I was doing in my physical classroom space, in the virtual classroom space. And I felt like I had to just kind of, I don't want to say fill the time, but I, I missed out on, you know, those interactions and having students create. And so I was trying to grab a lot of new ideas and try them. But then, of course, it led to a lot of people being overwhelmed, especially, I mean, teachers, myself, of course, students with all of the different kind of tools that teachers were using. And I think it was great that teachers were taking you know, the initiative to like find new ideas and bring them into their classroom. But of course, the flip side of that is if students have eight different teachers and each teacher is using, I mean, like for me, two to five different tools, depending on, I mean, not every single day, but that's a lot of tools. Um, moving forward, I mean, it's beneficial for students to have those kind of interactions and opportunities through the technology. But especially now at the beginning of this year, as you mentioned, I wonder as well if some teachers were thinking they were heading back into the physical classroom and getting everything ready, and then all of a sudden find out, you know what, we're distance, not even hybrid. And so you have to think fast, okay, I wanted to do this, or I normally do this at the beginning of the year, but I can't, so what do I do? And then looking for a lot of the ideas out there. So yeah. That, that's an amazing uh, route to take our conversation, I think, right now, because I, I think I hear among connected educators out there that teachers can't really continue to think that they're going to be able to do what they would normally do in person or with a hybrid model, you know, with those students who are coming in in person than at home. And so I guess what I'm wondering is those teachers who might be in that situation that happened the next town over from me, actually, mm -hmm. uh, a couple of weeks ago, they were planning on going back, at least with some of their students in person. And then they had to switch to remote, like on the fly. Um, and I, and I wonder if that's what throws teachers off the most because they're expecting to kind of do things in the same way, but then they realize they can't. And now they're scrambling to find tools and resources to be able to either keep instructing the way that they normally would or just the ones that would be like super impactful uh, for, for students now that they're at home. Yeah, I, I agree. And I one thing that I said too in the spring was like, when we had this new opportunity to take some chances and try some new things at the end of the year, because we were in the situation we were in, I was curious about myself as well, heading back into our schools. Like if we went back into our physical classroom, would I be going back to doing all the same activities and using the same materials that I had been the last time that I was there. But then of course, now at the beginning of this year, I, it's, it's been an, a challenge a little bit because in my mind, just as an example, teaching the Spanish alphabet at the beginning of the year, there are certain things that I do with that when I'm in the classroom. I mean, I'm spelling the words for the students, have different activities for them to do. But in this virtual space, it's been more difficult for me to really think, you know, how do I make those connections with them? And came up with some interesting ideas in the last week or so uh, of using some different tools, actually a podcasting tool for doing the alphabet. But 
it's, I, I found myself kind of getting back into this is what I was doing, or this is what I need to do, because I've always done it this certain way. And it's hard to kind of get back out of that again, which the first week is where I was kind of really struggling with that. And then as the second week came on, I'm like, okay, I don't need to do this the same way I was in the physical classroom. So what do I do? Where do I go from here? Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely new, right? What were the words you used before? Interesting and different. <laughs> interesting so, and different. And I know yeah. I've said interesting a couple of times. I'm trying to, <laughs> trying to get away from that, but it's, uh, it is. I mean, every single day there, there are, and I'm sure that every teacher out there that's teaching, I mean, whether you're in person, because it's not, it's not the same, I, your classrooms are not set up the same with the distancing uh, and using different tools and materials, like hands-on materials in your classroom, that's different if you're hybrid, if you're distance learning, figuring out the balance. I know for me, or anybody who's synchronous, I mean, our class periods are 42 minutes, and I want those interactions with my students. I want to be able to see them and hear their voices, but I also realize that it's draining to be looking at the camera look on screen that whole time. And for me, I was losing my voice by second period every day just from talking, and then it made me really think, like, I don't need to be talking the whole time. They need an opportunity to do some different activities that are away from the screen. Uh, and so I need to really invest time in, in figuring that out. That's a good point. I, I just wanted to mention a couple of quick things about uh, the research again that I found from Hattie and then move on with this a little bit. So uh, you talked about how we need to like arrange physically uh, and, and also at a distance now, the way that we group our students and activities and things. Um, interestingly, technology in small groups, and I'm not, a, you know, that's not too specific, but te technology in small groups, Hattie found, had a 0.21 oh, wow. effect size. So not very effective. And you know what had a 0.01 effect and I think is very relevant for what we're talking about here, uh, technology in distance education. Wow. And again, I don't know exactly what that means. I'd have to really, really read like the full research report rather than just, you know, the going through these different, um, whatever they call it, the, the list of right. visible learning things. But technology in distance education had a 0.01 effect, which surprises me a lot because if you're learning at a distance, mm -hmm. how do you do it without technology? And therefore, why would it yeah. be so ineffective? Right. I don't know. Yeah, that is a curious point. I'd be interested to know more about that, too. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. Uh, I, when I think of distance education, I mostly think of higher education. And, and I think I've said this before, you know, I have a master's and a doctorate degree that have been done completely 100% online virtually. Mm -hmm. um, so when I see something like that, that really like throws me for a loop. But then I also see that technology with college students is at a point for two. So something mm -hmm. is working in terms of distance learning and technology for college students in general, but only a 0 0.01 effect for distance education. I don't know. I don't know. I, as you're talking about that with how do you do the distance learning without the technology, I think back to when I went to Penn State, my undergrad. And over the summer, I took a course, it was American history, I think it was like a 
a part one of a series of courses that they offered just because I couldn't fit it in my schedule. And it was a distance learning course that I had the, the book and the course materials were sent to me at home over the summer. I think I had to make one or two phone calls to check in, but everything that I did, I sent through the mail. So it was typed on paper through the mail. And then at the end of the course, I had to go there and actually physically sit for the exam. So it's interesting to think, there's interesting <laughs> to think back to all those years ago, the distance learning, I mean, the technology involved it was learning from a distance and there really wasn't that much technology involved at that point I mean, paper. But now you're right with all of the different programs and degrees that we can get and have access to online, just I don't even, we, we need a whole other episode to talk about all the possibilities mm -hmm. for that, for learning that has op that have opened up for people who wanted to kind of further their career or get a different degree. And with time and schedule, all of that, trying to figure out how to balance it, having access to all of that online is hugely beneficial. Of course, there, <laughs> this is, this could be another episode. Of course, there's also the pushback that it's not the same as being in person and getting that education too. So uh, I don't want to open up that part of the conversation. Well, actually, I'm but. glad you did. And, and, you know, we can still kind of keep that relevant to to this uh, episode, I think, in terms of the educational technology, because um, to play devil's advocate, let's say, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's obvious, again, that you and I are, are big fans of technology and, and how to use it in the classroom as long as it's being done the right way and as long as, like we said before, there's, there's a purpose behind it. Uh, but I, I definitely found research out there that, really is uh, is not so supportive of technology and talks about how potentially it could it could even work against students. So, mm -hmm. um, for example, this this is a report that came from the MIT Technology Review. And when it comes to technology, yeah, I trust MIT. Um, they, they refer to some some surveys and studies in here, even from other reputable organizations like Gallup. So, for example, uh, a recent Gallup poll or a recent Gallup report found that 89% of students in the U.S. from third through 12th grade say they use digital learning tools at school a few days, at least a few days a week. Makes sense, mm -hmm. right? right? I mean, that's that's a vast majority of students. And clearly now in COVID times, uh, it's at least that many. But further, oh, I, I should point out that, uh, let's see, among administrators and principals, 96% fully or somewhat support the increased use of digital learning tools in their schools, with almost as much support, 85% coming from teachers. So just like you and I, yeah. definitely administrators and even many teachers out there do love their technology. So that's, uh, that's some of what MIT found. However, uh, they also found that there's maybe some negative aspects to using technology or, or too much technology. So, right. for example, um, this report came from the National Education Policy Center at the University of Colorado on personalized learning. It found, quote, questionable educational assumptions embedded in influential programs, self-interested self interested advocacy by the technology industry, serious threats to student privacy, and a lack of research support. So uh, definitely some some skepticism there. Okay. There a little bit later in this report, they talk about uh, how a, a heavy dose of technology at best really does not help and that uh, it found that technology is of little help in bridging the skills divide 
between advantage and disadvantage students, which actually gets us back to some of what we talked about last month in terms of the um, inequities that, right. that digital learning and technology present. Uh, and it even talks about flipped learning there mm-hmm. that um, basically there are surveys out there uh, among students that saw no benefit to flipped learning. So, uh, you know, as with much research that's out there, there's clearly people who are also finding that technology doesn't help as mm-hmm. much as we'd like to think that it would. Yeah, I uh, just even thinking about the distance learning in the last couple of weeks, and even over the last couple of years, too, it's not just specific to this year, but things that that I notice, uh, the negatives, I mean, and I've read too, I've been reading a couple of different articles, like there was an article on Edutopia, not that long ago that was talking about why integrate technology in your classroom. And then there have been you know, articles about here's the pros, here's the cons. And some of them that I've definitely noticed, uh, you know, like this, it can be distracting for students, the disconnection from social interactions, if you're using too much technology, but of course, in this distance learning, I mean, we need it to be able to have those interactions, like you and I able to talk right now, through technology. <laughs> and and, and so, we just won't even mention all the technical difficulties we had before <laughs> we actually got to record. And, and you shouldn't say we because it was just Rochelle. And <laughs> that's, that's kind of, you know, it goes with everything I do, there's well, always, you know, issue, actually, but... so if you could hold that, that thought for a second, <laughs> it's actually, it's, it's interesting that that came up because I don't know about you. I've certainly found among my teachers that I support at school that there have been technical glitches and things that have happened this week. Um, there have been breaches in security. Uh, yeah. We actually our our technology director just emailed everyone to say, look, once you get your students enrolled in Google Classroom, Shut, you got to shut the join code so mm-hmm. that more students can't join. Because I think what they're finding is that students, once they join, will give other kids who shouldn't be joining the class right. code and therefore the, the Google Meet link. And now you have anyone joining in your Google Meet and they could, you know, bomb you or, right? Is that what it's called? Yeah. Zoom bombing Zoom or whatever. Bombing, yeah. So, um, it, it can present problems in terms of technical difficulties, in terms of um, getting it in the, in the wrong hands and, and having the technologies and the devices be misused and mishandled. So it, it is important, actually, I think that we bring that up because sometimes uh, on your best day and your plan A, when that doesn't work, uh, right. you got to have something to fall back on. Yeah, it, there have definitely been a lot of days in the last couple of weeks where, I mean, anything from students getting kicked out of the meetings, audio not working, they say they can't hear me, although it's it's very strange because the first two can't periods... can't hear you. I, have no, <laughs> I, I don't know anything about that. Yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I shouldn't even bring that one up, but the, like, it, it's very curious. The first and second period can hear me absolutely fine. The fourth period, they all say, I can't hear you. And then the rest of the day, it's fine. And so it's, is it that period of the day that there's a problem? Is it, I mean, if, if everybody else can hear me, <laughs> I don't know what the problem is, but those are just some of the challenges. Students getting kicked out of meetings, like I said, and making sure that everybody logs in and having the video on there. It's, it's hard to balance all of that. And I know as a language teacher, one thing that I've always struggled with, with, with within my classroom is the use of translators, for example, with technology. And I think, you know, helping our students to develop the right skills and know what is appropriate, responsible use of technology. And it's that's one thing that is really, 
I've really noticed be difficult for me trying to figure out what I can give them for assignments and what types of technology or no technology methods that I can use to really help them to build their skills. But as a language teacher, I realize that they're not all going to go on to become Spanish teachers or use Spanish in their careers. So I want to do something else to help them be prepared for the future. And looking at research and looking at statistics from World Economic Forum and knowing the skills that our students will need, I know that in addition to teaching them Spanish, I need to help them to build those different skills. And uh, I read something the other day, too, that said that I think 42% of all jobs will change significantly by 2022, which that used to seem so far away. And that was from the World Economic Forum. And they're looking at, I mean, it was focused on Generation Z and how many students are interested in technology careers in the future. And even in my class, I mean, I'll do surveys to find out. But just because they use devices and we think that they have all the skills, they don't. And so finding the right opportunities and the right tools, not just to help them build those skills, but I mean, all the benefits that there are of using technology, which we could go into all those too, but there are definitely pros and cons. And so, you know, as educators, it's really hard to kind of go through the whole sorting process. And you mentioned Simon Sinek, and I, I have the book like over my right shoulder because I refer to it often. I always ask the question of why, what's the purpose? What's this going to help me do differently or better? What opportunities is it going to create for my students? And, uh, you know, I haven't always thought through a lot of the choices I've made when it comes to technology, but I'm getting better at it. And I know that a lot of teachers are really investing time in it. And it's, I mean, it's a learning process for all of us. There was a lot there that you said, and I don't <laughs> know if you know, the other day you, you and I were on a call where someone was actually sketch noting. And I, I was thinking as you were talking, not, not just you, but me, me too, like this whole conversation, I, I'd almost feel bad for someone who was trying to sketch note because we've gone all over the place. But, um, I, I led you into talking about for for a couple minutes there some sort of negative uh, aspects of educational technology, um, and then you came back around to the benefits. So I'm going to mm -hmm. sort of take that and run with it, and just kind of do the same thing. I just wanted to mention a couple more of the sort of downfalls of technology, and then we'll get back and and sort of wrap up with, I guess our our uh, our take on you know what this all means for for education. Um, we talked about this a little bit before with Hattie's work, but same report from MIT that I was referencing a minute ago, college students who use laptops or digital devices in their classes did worse on exams. Eighth graders who took the Algebra 1 online did much worse than those who took the course in person. And that's yeah. very generally speaking. It, it doesn't necessarily boil, you know, uh, come down to like individual students. So again, I, I just want to point out that it, it's important to know your students and know um, not just their skills and their deficiencies, but but how they learn best. Because if, right. you know, you, you could have students who are thriving in distance learning and learning from home and learning with mm -hmm. technology, and then some students who are really struggling with it. Uh, another thing that the MIT report pointed out is that the dangers of relying on technology are particularly pronounced, say that five times fast, <laughs> yeah. in literacy education and at early grade levels. So if you're listening out there and you're, you know, teaching elementary and, and uh, preschool students and you're helping them get into literacy and learning how to read and write, you know, at, at early stages uh, may not be the best idea to introduce technology to do that. I'm just, I'm not like telling you what to do. I'm just, research shows it may not be the best. And here, here's something interesting because we haven't talked 
too much about like motivation and how technology plays into that. But uh, MIT says that in addition to sapping motivation, technology can drain a classroom of the communal aspect of learning. You mentioned that before about that that social interaction right. that when you get students on their devices more and more, it takes away from uh, that, that socialization and everything, the classroom discussions, the Socratic seminars, those things that uh, that can work really well. And, and here's what's going to, here's what's going to help me come back around. And, and for me, sort of wrap this up. The MIT report uh, also says that allowing students to choose the topics they'll learn about can also lead to serious gaps in knowledge for children who don't know much about the world, or even for those who do, which, which is also supported in Hattie's research too, which shows that there is not a very large effect size. I don't know the number off the top of my head, although I have a printout right next to me. I printed it out. That's how nerdy I am. Um, it, there's not a great effect size when it comes to allowing students to choose what they want to learn about, which I find fascinating because mm -hmm. I really love the idea of things like Genius Hour and uh, Passion Projects. Yeah, me too. But interestingly, Hattie's research says, nah, it doesn't really affect things too, too much. All of that to say, and I'd love to get your take on this too, all of that to say that that I feel in my heart of hearts and, and with, with the research that just like everything, there's two sides of it. That's why this show is called Devil's Advocate, right? right. So we love technology, but to play Devil's Advocate, uh, you know, it might not work as well as we want it to sometimes, or it might not have a, as great of, of an effect on teaching and learning as we want. So to me, it comes down to, it's like, it's like dieting, right? Everything in moderation. You, yeah. you have to, do it in in increments, in chunks, in small amounts, whatever you want to call it. But you have to know how and when to really mix it in. And uh, and again, get to know your students on such a deep level that you can hopefully tell whether or not it's going to work for them. Yeah, it's uh, I'm thinking whenever you were well, a little bit ago, you were talking about like Genius Hour and Passion Projects. I was thinking project-based learning and just what an impact it, it was on my students to be able to choose. But I was also thinking about when we started doing things like that, that it was difficult for students to figure out what they were supposed to do. And that was uncomfortable for them. I, What do I create? What do I look up? What am I interested in? I said, you can pick anything. So it's, it, it, it's, it's interesting. Like when you think about that, how students, a lot of students get lost. And I've experienced that too when it comes to passion projects. So again, you think about how impactful uh, direct instruction is. You know, again, Hattie says it's about a 0.6 effect size. That's, that's pretty significant. Yeah. So it's tough, right? It's tough because learning can be very self-directed and, and some students and adult learners even can thrive on that. But mm -hmm. You know, whether you're talking about like old school methods or new school, there still needs to be some direction there. Direct instruction, teachers directing themselves, uh, kids, students helping direct each other. Maybe it's not completely self-directed, but um, that's why I think, you know, grouping students together does have a lot of advantages to it as well. Yeah, the like the the peer to peer feedback and just those collaborations really. And I read something the other day too, and I wish I had it handy to pull up the the actual statistics that they showed about the benefits of students working with peers. But just from my own experience, 
using things like station rotations in my class where, you know, each, each group was working on something. In some cases, it was just hands-on. Sometimes I gave them materials and I said, okay, make up a way to practice. And other stations were using some digital tool. And then I was kind of, I didn't have my own station to do direct instruction with them because I was just moving around the classroom. But from observations, just seeing how students were building skills in so many different areas, uh, especially when it came to the relationships in the classroom and facilitating that in those different ways where they had to work with different students and they were strong in one area and you could see their excitement for being able to explain something to a peer or if it was even just using some technology and they weren't sure about how to do it, having that support too. So it's, I always, I, I keep thinking of balance and the different options that are out there. And I think it's gonna be different for everybody. I mean, what works great for me? And for a long time, I thought, oh, this worked great for me as a language learner. My students are going to be the same way and not the case. And it's not easy to figure out. I mean, what works today does not necessarily work tomorrow. Uh, you just have to keep kind of thinking through it. And I, I often ask the students too, what, what is this helping you to do? Do you notice anything that makes it a little bit better or different? Uh, what are your preferences? And that helps to kind of guide me as well. And that, again, is not something that I always did, but I've learned that it is really beneficial to have that feedback from the students too. That's awesome. And, and I think that those comments that you made have helped me now really kind of come full circle and, and um, point out what I'm going to get up on my soapbox for a minute. I don't know if you want to join me, but here, here we go. And, and I'm going to cite research again. I'm going to base my thoughts on uh, support, you know, supporting details as uh, the ELA teachers out there will know. This comes right from Gallup, and it says here, these findings are based on a nationally representative online survey of 1,036 K-12 teachers uh, back in 2019, and also online surveys of 2,673 2, parents. Okay, so the Gallup poll is uh, is based on those, uh, those surveys that they put out, and like the big headline, and actually I highlighted this and put a little sticky note on it, it says, this is the key. All right. So here is me up on my soapbox saying, and, and I'm quoting actually the, the headline here in this article by Gallup, creativity plus transformative use of technology may reap even greater benefits. So right there, I think is the key. Uh, and, and then it even goes so far as to say that examples of transformative use of technology include using tablets or computers to create multimedia projects, conduct research, analyze information and create complex projects that uh, go across disciplines. And, and I want to highlight a few of the words in there because I think for those educators out there who are well-versed in things like blooms and things like depth of knowledge, you're seeing verbs like conduct research, analyze information, create complex projects. So those are some higher order thinking strategies and skills right there. And I think, again, to like come all the way back around here and me up on my soapbox. That's what I would say, right? Technology can work or it cannot work, but literally what research is finding and probably through experiential and, and anecdotal evidence, we would both say, correct me if I'm wrong, that 
technology works best when it's used creatively, when, as we've already said multiple times, there's a purpose for it and that students are really able to climb those levels of thinking and and doing through their use of technology. I Yes, I agree. Because I was thinking the same thing. Purpose, what's the why, what's the reason for it? And uh, yeah, create, I mean, and even thinking about the, the skills for the future, all of those, you know, the complex like the problem solving, the critical thinking, the creativity, the technology skills, they, the students need it, the teachers need it too. So we just need to find what works for us, what's the right balance, what's the right amount that's helping us to do something differently and giving students more opportunities. Amazingly well said. And I'm going to wrap up with this. And I just want to remind everyone that uh, to, to the best extent that I can, I'm going to put the links to these resources in the show notes and, and the post that'll be up on the website for this episode. And, and if you want to get there, it's leaderoflearning.com slash edtech, which is obviously all about what our discussion has been on in this episode. I want to leave you with this. And this also comes from this Gallup article and, and the Gallup's research is that K to 12 teachers who frequently make assignments that require students to think creatively are much more likely than other teachers to observe higher order cognitive skills in their students. So again, using the technology correctly and making the mm -hmm. students climb those ladders of higher order thinking is the key. And finally, Classroom creativity also corresponds to more engaged and more confident learners. Teachers who practice creativity in learning are much more likely than their counterparts who do not practice this to say their students often take responsibility for their own learning, meaning they feel confident about their ability to master difficult material, they're willing to take risks, and display a strong desire to learn more about the subjects taught in school. So I'm just going to wrap up and say, teachers, get creative. Have your students get creative in the projects that they're doing, the tasks that you are assigning to them, the technologies that you are using with them, because that's the key. And if you don't feel equipped to do that yet, learn more about it, delve into the research, listen to more of these podcasts, uh, whatever you need to do, reach out to, to human resources in your building, your department. Um, chances are there are other teachers who uh, might be more equipped than you, but uh, that's that's the key right there, I think, is, is get creative, understand why you're doing it, and then really try to harness the technology or any tools and resources that you use to get your students to really reach those higher levels. I can't say it any better than that. <laughs> awesome. <Nothing. laughs> well, that'll do it then. Uh, thanks for joining us again in this series, Devil's Advocate, and this one all about educational technology. Uh, Rochelle, why don't you hit them again with where they can find you and connect with you on socials? Yeah, pretty much very consistent. rdenae915, so R-D-E-N-E 915. Instagram, Twitter, email, <laughs> blog site. That's where I am. Yep. And I am Dr. Underscore Krinus on the socials, Twitter and Instagram. Leader of Learning is the website. And specifically for this episode, it's leaderoflearning.com slash edtech. And also just a reminder, and man, I, I feel bad I haven't gone and responded yet, but we did get one response on our Flipgrid uh, from last month's episode that we did on school reopening. But uh, if you would like to send us some video feedback or audio, because Flipgrid uh, is, is all about the audio now too. If you don't want to be on camera, that's fine. Find us at Flipgrid, flipgrid.com slash devil's advocate. 
Thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you again in October. See ya. Thank you so much for joining us. We encourage you to help contribute to the series. If you want to suggest topic ideas or comment on any of the conversations we have about trending topics in education, please participate on Flipgrid using the topic code Devil's Advocate or visiting flipgrid.com slash Devil's Advocate. If you haven't done so yet, don't forget to subscribe to the Leader of Learning podcast on your favorite podcast app. Also, if you enjoy the content shared on the show, please recommend this podcast to others. I would also appreciate it if you'd leave a positive rating and review on iTunes or Podchaser. Links to leave ratings and reviews can be found in the show notes. Thanks, and see you again for another episode of The Devil's Advocate next month.